0: CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of August the 10th. And it is hot. I'm not sure where you guys are, but. You know, on the East Coast, yeah, we had a little hurricane that cooled things off, but it's right back to where it was. I got about six, seven stories on tap. We'll see what we can get through. The first article comes out of Becker's Hospital Review, and it came out two hours ago. How UC Health realized financial savings and FTE efficiencies with authorization automation. So the prior authorization process is predominantly manual. In many healthcare organizations, which places significant financial and administrative burdens on providers, health plans, and revenue cycle staff. That we all know. I'm not sure if you've ever been involved in the prior authorization process, but I know just in my own office, my own practice, my nurse used to spend 30 minutes sometimes trying to get a prior auth done. It used to drive her nuts let's see Uh, the article continues by saying this burden is likely to continue unless the prior authorization process is intelligently redesigned and automated and then there was a webinar that was hosted by beckers and there were two panelists from uc health and they talked about what they were trying to do here so they set goals at uc health the these were the automation leaders one of the goals was increasing automation by 60% and then decreasing denials related to prior authorizations by 30% this would support the growth of the organization without adding full-time staff and increasing service level by getting accounts out the door rather than just doing follow-up work so did it work here they have been in place since June of 2019 they're using a solution that's called Waystar w-a-y-s-t-a-r I know nothing about them but There's the name if you're interested. The number of authorizations that don't need a staff touch has increased to an average of 40% and peaked at 47% in January. They're trying to get to 60%, but that's pretty impressive. And then they saw a 46% average monthly decrease in the volume of denials related to authorization, and they were just trying to get to 30%, so their denials have definitely gotten to target. This is equating to FTE savings of about nine employees per month. That's big deal. That's If you can reassign those employees to do other tasks, that is a huge benefit. So as CMIOs, do you ever get involved with the automation of RevCycle? Probably not, but there are other things out there that probably need automating that you should consider this technology for. And I'm thinking about registry work in particular. We all have to report out data to the bariatric society or whatever, the trauma society, whatever anesthesia societies that need data. Fine, great, automate it. We have people sitting in little cubicles manually entering data into those registries. Got to find a better way to do that. That makes healthcare incredibly inefficient. There is no added value to the healthcare system by having those people sitting there doing keyboard work. Next article. This one's out of EHR Intelligence. August 6, Christopher Jason. Cerner integrates EHR digital health platform to boost patient experience. Cerner announced it is partnering with the digital platform Zelth. that's X-E-A-L-T-H, in an effort meant to enhance the patient care process uh, experience and enable patients to be active treatment participants throughout the healthcare process. So, what does Zelth do? If you haven't seen this tool, I think it's really cool. It allows you, from within your EHR, to prescribe digital content like an app or a video or a digital online learning uh, related tool or a referral to a, a digital mental health uh, solution. This is where we need to be. Right now, I might tell my patient in the primary care office, hey, uh, here's here's a recommendation. I want you to go get that Livongo app or Gluco app for your diabetes. I might write it down on a piece of paper for them. I may, if I'm really good, put it down in their after-visit summary what I want them to go do. But imagine if I could prescribe it. And in that prescription, it then goes through the portal to the patient who then clicks the link and now is taken to download the correct app and I get feedback. I, as the provider, can will get a notification that the patient did what they were supposed to do, that they watched the content or downloaded the app or whatever it was. That's awesome technology. So I'm excited to see it's in Cerner. I know it's already in Epic, it's a app in the app store. In one EHR interface, users can order solutions and manage conditions such as behavioral health, maternity care, chronic diseases, and surgery prevention. That's what the article says. And I think you get the point there. Uh, love the technology here. If you're on Cerner, definitely take a look at this one. I think it's really useful. Next one, also EHR intelligence. Epic employees unhappy with COVID-19 return to work policy. This one came out on August the 6th. Epic, which has about 9,000 employees, uh, they must plan to return to Verona, Wisconsin-based office by September 21st. This was reported by the Capital Times. As a result of the announcement and subsequent end to working remotely, the results of an anonymous survey found that 89% of EPIC employees were dissatisfied with the vendor's COVID-19 response, according to a CBS This Morning segment. Additionally, 56% of the roughly 400 respondents said they were uncomfortable with returning to campus due to personal beliefs and or philosophical issues. Another 34% said they were not ready to return due to childcare, transit, or medical issues. Why do I bring this article up? Because we have people that are currently working from home and they may not want to come back. Now I'm hearing both sides of the stories here. I've got some people who are telling me, look, I have to come back, find me a place in the hospital to work because the kids are at home. They drive me nuts. I can't get done when I need to get done. So what can we do about this? I have others who are saying, I never want to come back. This is great which is probably going a little bit too far, but I think there's definite potential. And as a CMIO think about, can you have access to a bigger labor market if you allow remote work? And so I'm in a rural area of Maryland. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could tap into Washington DC and Baltimore labor markets by allowing people to do remote work. Hey, come in and see us once a month. And that may not be too big of an inconvenience where we actually get to see you and collaborate in person, do your performance review or what have you. Maybe we'll get to the point where we don't even need to do that. But this is interesting how employees are fighting the mandatory return to work. Certainly the COVID concerns are there, but I also think people have figured out how to handle their lives and work at the same time. And what you're seeing here is childcare issues and medical issues. I think people, particularly with childcare, are finding that there's a savings if they don't have to put the kids in daycare and they get to keep those savings. So working from home has some financial benefits for them. Others are finding, yeah, less commute, less gas, less wear and tear on the vehicles. All very valid reasons for keeping people at home. If you're getting the productivity, if you're seeing that it works, and if you can even measure it in the first place, good for you and consider keeping your people at home. We did an employee survey recently and there were many people who put in their survey that they would like to continue to work from home. Next article out of healthcare IT news: Green County General quickly transitioned school telehealth program to a countywide program. Bill Sawicki, August 5th. So this is Green County General Hospital in Linton, Indiana. Just to give you the set the stage here, Green County spans 546 miles and has a population of about 30,000. So this is a small place. In the fall of 2019, they began implementing telehealth in their schools, said Brenda Reed CEO of Greene County General Hospital. We started with one school and quickly expanded. When implementing telehealth, we hoped it would connect Greene County students to healthcare without parents needing to arrange transportation or leave work. They are now using the Tito Healthware and Software Solution, that's TYTO. If you haven't seen Tito's solution, and again, I'm not—I have no connection with them or anything. I, I just think their stuff looks cool. They have some pretty cutting-edge-looking tools for telehealth that are Bluetooth-enabled. So you've got the otoscope, and you've got, I think, a skin-examining device, and you've got a heart and lung sound uh, stethoscope, digital stethoscope. Some really cool tools that integrate and just enhance that digital telehealth experience. So, interesting that they were doing this in the schools. They said within two years of developing a telehealth service, every school in Greene County and one school outside the county had telehealth available. I love that, and I wanted to do that in previous uh, systems that I was in where we had large contracts with the city and county employees. It would make so much sense to drop telehealth carts into those places. The problem is, is the return on investment wasn't there in a, for, in a not-for-profit that acts like a for-profit health system where you need to put expensive carts into these nursing stations and the schools. But well, we probably don't need to go that fancy. And I bet you they're not going quite that fancy. These uh, title care kits are not tens of thousands of dollars, and they can get a very good telehealth product for significantly less than that. Now here's the downside. In 2020, providers only saw 20 students via telehealth. Why? Because the schools are closed. And so that's the downside of this. And it sounds like they're able to transition their telehealth efforts more direct to the patient in their home. And they started to get that adoption and acceptance of telehealth. So maybe when the kids come back to school, they're gonna see even greater demand for this. But I love what they're doing here. And if you can replicate and get something going in your schools when they open, if they ever open, I think that's a great idea. Next studies in Moby Health News. JAMA study warns telemedicine is not suitable for 38% of patients over 65. And this is by Laura Levitt, uh, August 5th. The study, which looked at data from adults over the age of 65, found that over a third of people weren't ready for video visits. Researchers cited issues ranging from difficulty in hearing to tech issues. Here's a quote uh, from the authors, although many older adults are willing and able to learn to use telemedicine, an equitable health system should recognize that for some, such as those with dementia and social isolation, in-person visits are already difficult. Telemedicine may be impossible. For these patients, clinics and geriatric geriatric models of care, such as home visits, are essential. It's interesting, they also went on to say that 38 Percent are not ready for virtual visits, but thirty it drops to 32 percent if you provide social support for how to set up the call. And we're exploring this now in our health system about outsourcing the patient-facing tech support because our own IT department has said, "Yeah, that's a lot for us to handle. We don't think we can take that on." So we're looking to outsource that, and there are certainly are vendors out there that do that. Reach out to me if you need a name, because we've we've interviewed a few, but. That concept of can we hold a patient's hand through the sign-up process and have a higher completion rate? Sounds like the answer is yes. Expect about an 8% bump in improvement there. Interesting that telephone visits also posed a challenge for them, and there's estimated 20% of those over age 65 had trouble with telephone. That's mostly hearing related. So there's going to still be a significant portion of our population that struggles with this remote care. And we need to figure out as health systems we can't leave these people behind. How are we going to help them get the care that they need? I don't have brilliant answers for you on this yet, but watch this space. I think we will see there will be vendors jumping in to solve the, the hearing problems, the difficulty of video visits, making these solutions easier. This article comes out of Politico, and it was written on August 6th. VA pushes on with troubled health data transformation. So for those of you who aren't aware, the VA, they're going to spend $16 billion to replace their Vista health record software, which was revolutionary and pioneering at the time, but it's ancient in these days, so they're putting in Cerner. And their goal here is to have a unified system across their active duty and their retired health intervention departments. One of the problems that they're having here is related to the infrastructure. VA hospitals, this is a quote from the article, VA hospitals are often antiquated and lack the equipment needed for a software changeover, including modern computers and cabling to transmit data, as well as HVAC systems. The House Veterans Affairs Committee told Politico in 2018 that the price of the EHR contract did not account for upgrading infrastructure. And there's a quote from someone who's involved. Oh, yes. The Secretary uh, Robert Wilkie at a House budget hearing, who I guess this is a VA official, referred to the ancient buildings needing infrastructure spending. I'm spending millions and millions of dollars building closets right now to house equipment. Because the facilities, some of which are over 100 years old or older, cannot accept the kind of infrastructure that we need to get these programs online. Message for the CMIOs. When you're planning a go live, you may not be involved on that infrastructure piece, but it definitely has an impact on you. Whether or not you can get the solution to your end users you are planning this great workflow but turns out you can't actually get a computer into that uh, ct room or wherever anesthesia needed to do their work for a cath procedure that needed sedation or some kind of cardiac ep procedure those little surprises show up and they usually show up like when you're in the middle of the implementation as i think the va is finding out here So they're delaying their implementation. They've had to delay it because of COVID. Interesting that Cerner comes out and says, hey, we are not getting access to the clinicians that we need to do the go-live. That makes sense to me. The clinicians are busy right now. They're dealing with COVID. So it makes sense that they had to push that back. And I bet you they're gonna continue to have to push it back. And it's not gonna make people in Congress happy, but so be it, your doctors and nurses are busy doing other things. So just a message for the CMIOs is to think about your, uh, the infrastructure delays that you're gonna run into that you weren't planning about for your next acquisition or your next go live. I know I'm living with this right now. We acquired some cardiology practices and it turns out that there, we have to try to get their PAC systems onto ours and there's all kinds of technology troubles, infrastructure problems, getting that done. Create some interesting challenges. Last article is TeleDoc and Livongo. Uh, has merged on August 5th. This is out of Becker's Hospital Review, published on August the 7th. So listen to this. The combined company has a market cap that is larger than Johnson & Johnson. So just think about that because neither one of these companies have been around nearly as long as Johnson & Johnson. The combined market cap for Livongo and Teladoc was $8 billion before the pandemic. And now it is 38 billion, according to Forbes just tremendous explosive growth in that telehealth section and the digital marketplace. I know nothing about whether it's worth the 38 billion that it's now has a market cap at, but I do think it's very interesting just for CMIOs to understand the changes that are happening in technology space here. And when you have such a large market cap, Uh, you do have access to capital and their ability to continue to grow and expand is going to continue. So whether you're partnering with them or you are making your own products that you are trying to get to market, there's now a very large beast in the room. And I think we can wrap it up there for today, just about 20 minutes. Uh, Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, some of your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.